I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about the past, present, and future of the President's Cup. So the 2022 President's Cup starts at Quail Hollow today with the U.S. team facing off against the international squad, and it sort of feels like this is a fork in the road for this team match play event overall. The defections to live golf have weakened both teams, really, but especially the international side. And the fear is that the President's Cup will become even less competitive, even more lopsided than it has been historically. So we figured it was a good time to talk about where this event came from, what it is now, and whether it's ultimately worth fighting for. To discuss all of that, I'm joined by Andy Johnson. Andy, how's it going? Garrett, it's going great. I'm uh, I'm excited to dig into the President's Cup. I made a I, I made a proclamation on the shotgun start uh, maybe last year that I thought that one of my you know takes was that the President's Cup would would overtake the the Ryder Cup in terms of competitiveness <laughs> over the next thirty years. Then Liv came and and pretty much snatched away all of us great players, and uh, here we are at at really I, I think you put it correctly a crossroads because you know with the the international flavor of the Live Tour that they've created and and poached you know a lot of the big name your international players um, this event really has been has been weakened and I and I feel bad for it because I think you know. We're going to get into the history of this event, but I think one of the things is that it got off to a little bit of a slow start because it didn't have a real imaginative creation. Um, It was really kind of a copy of the Ryder Cup, but it was showing promise, especially, you know, I think one of the recent high, high water moments for it was obviously Royal Melbourne where it was in a very competitive match between, you know, teams and you could start to see this young talent that, the international side had. And if you look at the world rankings, if the internationals were able to, you know, have the players that should be available to them. And if you give some players, some world, some additional world ranking points, you're all of a sudden looking at like seven or eight top 30 players, which would all of a sudden create a very formidable matchup. And I think that's the thing about it is that this, this event was really trending into becoming something that was going to be better than it had been the last 20 years significantly. And I think something that could have been pretty good. And now you're kind of back at the drawing board. Yeah, it was really a big blow to the President's Cup to lose Cameron Smith, to lose Abe Anser, who are some other players that were pretty significant losses recently. Louis Ustazen. Mm-hmm. You you go down the list and and there's just there's a lot of guys that, you know, if, if you look at the best players on on the effectively the best players on on live, a lot of them, Joaquin Neiman obviously comes to mind, top 20 player. Uh, so, you know, between answer, Ustazen, Cam Smith and Neiman, 
that's four top 30 players that are that are gone. And, and really, when you look at the captain's picks, they're being replaced by guys that are borderline top 100 players. So the, the issue for the international team has always been depth. The format, which is, which is more golf, illuminates this issue with the international team. And the second that they were building depth, they've had kind of the chair pulled out from under them with live golf. Yeah, it's a, it's a real shame. Uh, we'll talk more later in the pod about the future of the President's Cup, and we'll talk about some ideas about where it could go next. But I wanted to get a little bit into the history. Um, so first of all, what have you made of the President's Cup in your life of golf fandom? Have you enjoyed the President's Cup in general? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, at times. There are but there's moments of where it's been great. I think, you know, when it goes when it goes to Royal Melbourne and it's on in December and it's on at night, you know, that's an example of a great event, right? Because it's it's you're seeing a world class course. You're seeing a course that has like a distinct home advantage for the Australian players, right? So that gives that makes it a little bit more even. And you saw like the last time you know, the U.S. was kind of perplexed by the golf course, but they figured it out as it went and they got better and better on the golf course as the event went on. So, you know, it, it's had these great moments. You obviously the Ells Woods playoff into darkness was was an iconic President's Cup moment and the moment that everybody remembers. But then it also has like just like sheer skippability, irrelevant moments like Liberty National blowout comes to mind where you're playing a pretty pretty bland golf course that obviously has great views of of the New York skyline but just a complete lopsided victory and you know that we play sports for these these upsets that could happen this week but right now you know I think the average world rank of the Americans is 11 and you know the the international team is grasping at straws here in terms of a talent disparity you know they're plus almost 700 in betting odds, which is, which is like a top five college football team losing to a, you know, a non power five school. So like you're talking about that's unranked. You're talking about like a monumental upset here. And hopefully we get some sort, hopefully just Sunday has some semblance of competition, but in terms of, you know, it's just been a hit or miss event, right? Whereas the Ryder Cup is must-see TV every, every year. The the majors are must-see TV every year. This is an event where you're kind of like, well, we'll see what happens. Yeah, well, one thing I will say for the President's Cup is that it has one big thing going to its benefit, and that is that it is team match play. And this format is magical. Like, it just produces fun moments, even in the midst of blowouts, I would say. I don't think there's really such a thing as a completely dull team match play event. For one thing, because when you get down to the singles matches, unless it's a historic blowout that we haven't really seen before, there's always a sliver of a chance that the team that's behind will catch up in the singles matches on Sunday. And that gives you a reason to watch to the very end. And then beyond that, just the match play dynamics between players it always creates something that's worth paying attention to, I think. Something that's at least funny, even if it isn't dramatic in terms of the play. So I will say that because there's all kinds of things that you could say by way of critique of the President's Cup. Like, 
you know, and we will say them in this podcast that, you know, it's, it's just this created event. It, it doesn't really have that great of a history. It was just created to kind of make money and to stave off competition. And so there are all those things that you can say about it. But when it comes to the matches itself, when the President's Cup actually starts, I find that every time I just put all of that other stuff out of my mind and I end up enjoying the tournament. I, I just do. And so I, I will say that for it. I'm glad that it's around. It's certainly better than whatever it would have been replaced by this fall, right? If we were getting another Fortinet on the PGA Tour or another Live Chicago or something like that, this would be a completely boring week and we would be doing a podcast about something else. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. And I think this is the thing is like we, we crave different formats uh, just because we see the same format so often. And and this is an intoxicating format. Like it, it creates cool, like Siwoo Kim with the sh- shushing, you know, it's a moment that you'll remember from uh, Liberty National, even though he was just getting his ass kicked. The, the team was all week, right? You know, I think, was it, wasn't he like three down when he did that? I mean, it's just stuff like that. It's it's silly stuff that you don't see at other events. That's what the team match play environment creates. So I think that's that's a fair assessment. It is it it's better than a regular event, but is it the Ryder? It does it deliver with the consisting of the of the Ryder Cup, you know. And I think that's where I would say that from the start, this event was maligned for being a a copy of the Ryder Cup. Absolutely. So why don't we go back into some of that history? And talk about where the President's Cup came from. So I did some research here. I was expecting when I started this research that I would just be talking to you about what happened in the early 90s and how the President's Cup was created in that moment. But as I dug into the research, I kept going farther and farther back in time. Eventually, I just had to stop myself because I was going to like go back to the 19th century and talk about how the beginnings of golf eventually led to the President's Cup. But I eventually just stopped in the late 60s, and that's where I want to start from in talking about where the President's Cup came from. And what happened in the late 60s was that the PGA of America split from what would become the PGA Tour, okay? So the PGA of America for decades ran what was then the PGA Tour, but in the 50s and 60s, tournament players started to become richer and more famous, and they wanted to have their own tour independent from the club pro or the golf professionals organization. So Andy, I don't know if you know this, but a golf professional is different from a professional golfer. Yeah, I I, I heard that before. You know, <laughs> I could see how they were intermixed uh, a little bit. How confusion could come. You know, given the early origins of the touring pro involved some time at a club because they couldn't. You know, they didn't make enough money on the road to to support their family. But yes, I I am aware that that there are there is a big difference. There is a big difference. And and that difference really became clear in the 1960s when tournament golf became much more profitable because of the popularity of players like Arnold Palmer, particularly, but also Jack Nicklaus and others. So in the late 60s, the tournament players wanted to split from the PGA of America. And in the negotiations, the PGA of America got to retain certain tournament properties and the tournament players took other tournament properties. And one of the properties that the PGA of America got to keep was the Ryder Cup, which at the time 
was not nearly as profitable, was not nearly as popular, and really was kind of a money loser for many, many years. But it was at the time a competition between Great Britain and Ireland and the U.S. Eventually, it would become Team Europe versus the U.S. But in any case, the PGA of America got the Ryder Cup. That wasn't that big of a deal. The tournament players, what would become the PGA Tour, got the World Series of Golf. And the World Series of Golf was a competition in late summer or fall between the four major winners from that season. And it was really a pretty big deal. Like it was a fairly popular event that people looked forward to, that people liked. And so getting this event was kind of a big deal for the PGA Tour. But what the PGA Tour did is that they almost immediately turned it into a 72-hole stroke play event in the 1970s. It was held at Firestone Country Club, and by the 1990s, it was just this kind of part of the PGA Tour schedule that wasn't really super distinguishable from the rest of the PGA Tour schedule. It was just another stroke play event. Ultimately, it was replaced in 1999 by a WGC, the WGC Invitational that, that Tiger Woods won a number of times. It was the WGC Bridgestone. It moved from Firestone to TPC Southwind in 2019, and now it kind of no longer exists. So think about how that happened, right? So, so the PGA Tour got the World Series of Golf instead of the Ryder Cup. The Ryder Cup goes on to become this very popular event. The World Series of Golf just gets kind of absorbed into the rest of the PGA Tour schedule. I think that's kind of an amazing illustration of some of the things that the PGA Tour has not done right over the past 40 years or so. I think that they like kind of believe that every event should be in a way the same. And that's what they did with this is they took a unique property and made it the same. I The one thing I wonder about is then did they bring the World Series of Golf back? Because I remember that that event existing. You know, did it go away for a while and they bring it back later? So the PGA of America started its own kind of World Series of Golf. Now, I have, oh. I've, I've forgotten what it was called. It might have been called the World Cup of Golf. I, I remember that World Series of Golf existing, though, in the 90s, like the, the same format, like the, the player, the major winners from years before. And it was run by the PGA of America. So the tour got rid of it and the PGA brought it back. Yes, the PGA brought it back in like the late 70s. And Dean Beeman was royally pissed off about that. <laughs> he, he did not like that the PGA of America had basically like given them the World Series of Golf and then the PGA of America win, went and created its own version of that. I mean, it was uh, that was a conflict between the, the two organizations for sure. But uh, yeah, the PGA of America decided to recreate it once, of course, the PGA Tour had moved away from the original format of the World Series of Golf that had apparently made it popular. So that, that's kind of, I mean, all in all, that's sort of a digression in this history, but I, I think it was just so representative of how the PGA Tour dealt with its events that I had to mention it. So the real thing that led directly to the creation of the President's Cup, or one of the main factors was that the Ryder Cup became extremely popular and profitable by 1991. So in the 80s, the Ryder Cup was competitive, but it wasn't yet really truly profitable. In 1991, it was the war on the shore at Kiowa Island. It was televised in a U.S. national market live on NBC. 
you know, before it had been kind of pushed to weird times on not as prominent networks. And so this was really the first time that the Ryder Cup was beamed into people's living rooms across the U.S. in a major way. And it was this huge success. It was such an exciting tournament. The U.S. won. That's when the Ryder Cup really became the modern Ryder Cup. And now just imagine Dean Beeman, who knew, of course, that the uh, fledgling PGA Tour did not get the Ryder Cup in those initial negotiations with the PGA of America. Just imagine how pissed off Beeman was in that moment when the Ryder Cup really had its moment. He was probably thinking, well, this is not good. Yeah. Missed opportunity. Exactly. Huge missed opportunity. And Dean Beeman tried a number of times to buy the Ryder Cup from the PGA of America, but the PGA of America always refused. So here's Beeman, the commissioner of the PGA Tour. He wants his own version of the Ryder Cup by the early 90s. Now, the other thing that really cleared the way for the President's Cup to be created was the collapse of what was called the Four Tours World Championship. Have you ever heard of this event, Andy? No, (laughs) I hadn't either. I had no idea that this event existed, but it did. It was originally called the Nissan Cup, then the Kirin Cup, then the Four Tours World Championship. It was a team match play event between the PGA Tour, the European Tour, the Australasian Tour, and the Japan Tour. And it was held between 1985 and 1991. The players who participated in it included Nick Faldo, Greg Norman, Bernhard Langer, Fred Couples, Payne Stewart, but Seve Ballesteros never played in it. Tom Watson never played in it. And so it wasn't really a sensation, right? And ultimately it folded in 1991 when the sponsor pulled out. But what that did is that created a void and there was suddenly a race to fill that void. This was 1992, right? The 1991 Ryder Cup has always already happened. People are recognizing that team match play is a formula for making a lot of money. And so there's this race to create a new international team match play event. And one of the organizations that wanted to create its own team match play event was IMG, right? The agency. Mark McCormick. Yeah. And uh, as Beeman put it at the time, he said, this was a vacuum that was going to be filled and we better fill it first, right? We, the PGA Tour, need to beat IMG to the punch here. Now, this is an excerpt from Adam Shupak's book, Golf's Driving Force, right? I want to give much credit to this book because it really filled in a lot of history for me. This is how Adam Shupak describes, you know, the race to create a new international team event. He said, On December 21st, 1993, several months in advance of the public unveiling of the President's Cup, IMG issued a short press release with plans to pit the holder of the Ryder Cup, but not restricted to the same team members, against a team from the Southern Hemisphere, consisting of Australia, New Zealand, Southern Africa, South America, and the Pacific Islands in a biennial major international golf tournament. No date, no site, or formal name for the matches was announced but it was planned to debut in late 1994 under the tentative title of the Hemisphere Cup. A $2 million purse was reported. According to IMG's Alistair Johnston, the concept had the backing of a consortium of international television companies, including ABC Sports in the U.S., Sky Television in Great Britain, and Star Television in Hong Kong. So this was IMG's concept, the Hemisphere Cup. 
And so recognizing that this first Hemisphere Cup was going to take place in late 1994, the PGA Tour basically rushed to create the President's Cup, which is the competition that we know now between the U.S. team and an international collection of players who are not from Europe. Interesting that it was eerily similar. Very similar to the Hemisphere Cup idea, right? <laughs> and and it, especially when you fast forward to, you know, what created some Greg Norman angst in there uh, originally was the the WGCs and the his world tour idea. Absolutely. And that and that becomes relevant in the story after the President's Cup is created because it's at the same time that Greg Norman is trying to form the world tour, right? These things are are happening concurrently. Um but one thing to note about the difference between the differences between the Hemisphere Cup pitch and the President's Cup pitch is that the Hemisphere Cup involved the winner of the past year's Ryder Cup. So it could be Team Europe or it could be Team USA. Wow. The President's Cup is always Team USA, right? So the President's Cup, the main difference is the U.S. team is always featured. Um, but it's just really interesting, right? But the, the President's Cup, the only reason that the first President's Cup happened in 1994 was that IMG was going to create its own international team match play event to kind of capitalize on the new popularity of the Ryder Cup. That's why the President's Cup came about. Well, I just think that it, it just speaks to just the general adage of the tour, which is when they see something they like, they want to do it themselves. And it's not a it's not really a collaborative situation right and one of the issues when when something's not your idea it always lacks an authenticity it always has an authenticity issue and i think that at its core the president's cup has been plagued by this is clearly something that the tour is doing to make money this is a profit versus the Ryder cup was you know when you think about the image of the Ryder cup the Ryder cup prints cash now but it didn't always print cash and what led to it printing cash was the establishment of a clear identity, of history. Like, the event was allowed to breathe, and it was allowed to be a loser for a while before it became a winner. You know, that's the way a lot of businesses work, is that they struggle early on before they become, like, you know, a great event. When when things are overnight sensations, oftentimes they struggle with success. The President's Cup was like, hey, we're going to set this event up and we're going to make so much money. And like a perfect example is having four days of attendance, four days of TV. That is done for money. That is done for TV contracts and attendance, right? They, they have four days of competition. What that four days, that money, that added money they get has hampered the international's ability, international team's ability to compete because the longer you play this out, Talent wins, and the U.S. has always had more talent. So that's a perfect example of, like, if you wanted to create a more compelling competition, you'd want it shorter. Maybe it's a two-day thing, and the internationals would have a really great chance. Like, they would have won the last President's Cup if it was two or three days. So with this, you know, you see how every decision they make is is not really theirs, but then also with the President's Cup and the founding of the President's Cup was really centered around making money, which is a bad intention if you want to create a really compelling golf tournament. Everything about the President's Cup is kind of artificial, right? The international team 
is just kind of a random collection of countries that is more determined by the structure of the Ryder Cup than it is by any natural relationship between the players on that team. Now, that's not to say that Trevor Immelman, the captain of this year's President's Cup international team, can't create some kind of identity for the players, but it just doesn't exist there beforehand. So the President's Cup is this completely artificial money-making construction, right? But I think it's a testament to the magic of team match play that it works at all. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Riomar. Uh, Riomar makes wonderful shoes. They're kind of uh, dress up, dress down types of shoes. Great for wearing to golf, after golf. They have uh, deck drivers and, and a bunch of different leather shoes. They offer a lot of great features. My favorite one is that, you know, one of my concerns with shoes that you'd wear without socks is, you know, they start to smell after a while. I've had my, I've had a, a pair of Rio Mars for a couple years now, and they do not smell. It's one of their best features. They also have women's shoes. So this is not a, a male only shoe. They have good looking shoes that Mrs. Friedag even enjoys. And if you use the promo code TFE, 15, you will get 15% off your order. So go to riomar.com and check out their offering of uh, really shoes that are versatile and they last a long time. So riomar.com, use the promo code TFE15 and thank you to Riomar for your support. So you, you did a little bit of research of your own. You were reading some old articles. What are some of the highlights there? What, what were some of the things that stuck out to you? So, you know, Norman in 94 was sick. Yes. And they wanted him, and they wanted him, so he couldn't play his singles match. I've always found that so weird. I, I mean, I think that Norman was a big booster of the President's Cup. I think he was jealous of the Ryder Cup and the, the fame that it brought players like Seve and, uh, and Nick Faldo. So I think he was in support of the President's Cup, but his, his kind of, uh, uh, staying out of that that first President's Cup is so strange because I'm not even sure what was wrong with him. I, I guess he had like something like the flu, but then he showed up on the last day. Yeah, he was in the crowd. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so I mean, here this is you know one of the most high profile players in the world, right? You know, arguably like at the time the face of golf, right? And I think obviously it under the underlying issue here when he goes from 94 to 96 is Greg Norman has a a real issue with any sort of authority. He had all kinds of issues with sponsors over the years. He had all kinds of issues. Like anybody that that he effectively reports to in some way or like, you know, he has an issue with. So anyways, he... He is on this, uh, he's sick, and, and, and the telecast wants to mic him up, and he's game for it. You know, what, what better than playing than a day in the spotlight, tell, you know, commenting and being real part of the tournament when you're too ill to play. But you're, you're like, I couldn't think of, if I was, felt really bad, the last thing I'd want to be doing is spectating a golf event. That's just <laughs> me. Um, so anyways, David Graham, the captain of the, of the international team, great Australian player. I think, you know, at the time he was the only Australian, I believe he was 48. So he still, he hadn't transitioned to the senior tour, which was one of the reasons he was the captain. He was in his later forties. He'd won two majors, he, you know, two different majors too. So he was really well-respected. He said, no, absolutely not. You can't mic him up. 
And so that made Norman really mad. And Norman held this grudge and staged effectively a coup in, before the 96 event. Two months out, the, the players voted to dismiss. There was a mutiny. They, they kicked Graham out as captain. And Peter Thompson eventually took over. You know, they had this player-only meeting, and, and David Graham was all for it. Oh, the players are getting together. This is great. And in this player meeting, they, they end up kicking Graham out. And Fincham had no clue this was coming. Graham had no clue this was coming. It was an utter disaster for the, for the event. And uh, thus, it led to uh, Peter Thompson being the captain. And he, like, let none of the players talk about this. It was considered an utter embarrassment that this was happening. Um, so just a crazy little tidbit of, of President's Cup history. Yeah, so Greg Norman essentially led a mutiny against his captain. What a surprise that Greg Norman did something (laughs) divisive. And what's remarkable about this is that the 1996 President's Cup is essentially where, I'm not sure if this is a historical fact, but it's right around the same time that Tim Fincham announced the World Golf Championships. And so Fincham made this announcement, and it took Norman by surprise. Because earlier, he had come up with the idea of a world golf tour, but eventually he had been kind of outflanked by Tim Fincham, and that idea fell apart. Now, here we are at the 1996 President's Cup. Tim Fincham has just announced that the World Golf Championships are going to be established in a couple of years. Greg Norman is absolutely livid, and he confronts Tim Fincham in the lobby of the hotel where both President's Cup teams are staying, and they have a bit of an argument. I'm not sure it was a shouting match or anything like that, but it was significant enough so that it was actually reported in the press at the time that Fincham and Norman had a confrontation in the lobby at the President's Cup. So just think about Greg Norman's story in the lead-up to the 1996 President's Cup, right? He didn't play in the 94 President's Cup because of some kind of strange random illness that he had. And then he shows up at the 96 President's Cup having ousted his captain, and then he gets into it with the PGA Tour commissioner in the lobby of the hotel. Um, I mean, it's just a ridiculous sequence of events. And then a couple of decades later, he's a President's Cup captain. And then he gets kind of pushed out of the captaincy, and he doesn't feel good about that either. That was a whole other controversy He has had, Norman has really had a a tumultuous relationship with the President's Cup. And guess what? Now he's the head of a league that is absolutely attacking the President's Cup right now, just picking off players who would be significant parts of the international team. It's, It's almost as if he had a vendetta against it. It's almost as if he's motivated a bit by revenge here. It's almost, almost like that. All right. So I want to get into uh, where we think the President's Cup is going from here. I mean, we don't have to talk too much about the Quail Hollow matches. I think they're pretty lopsided, right? (laughs) Um, At least that's how it looks going into it. I think the thing I would say is that the internationals could very well win. That's why we play the game. They have world-class players too. They, They just don't have, you know, the kind of like top 10 talent that the U.S. team has pretty much across the board. Upsets happen all the time. But the reality of the situation is whether or not they win or lose, I think the one big thing is in years future, are live players going to be allowed to be involved? And that's a big question. I, you know, I don't have the, 
as much of a problem with the President's Cup continuing if if in two years live players are playing because then all of a sudden the talent differential is is not as great as it was. But assuming live players are not involved, then you know you have to look and you have to say, "Hey, what are we doing?" And I don't think that this can go on with the talent differential that is in play for this event. Say that the status quo as the golf world has settled into right now, say that, you know, more or less within the next couple of years, things kind of stay how they are right now. What would you want to see the president's cup do? Would you want it to remain the same kind of team match play event? Or are there other ideas that we can go with? I've got a a few ideas here. Now I'm going to go from like easiest to most difficult to implement for the, for the tour. Okay. Idea number one, easiest to implement, is make the international team include Europe. (laughs) All right? And then all of a sudden you have, uh, it involves the entire tour, which I've always thought is really weird, is that you have this event that doesn't involve all of the tour. And I think that's one of the issues with the event, is that arguably your most marketable player on tour isn't involved with it, which is weird to me. And obviously that's because of the Ryder Cup. They probably didn't want to feel like, you know, early on that they were stepping on their toes. But at this point, you know, this isn't a this isn't a competition really. This is this is a early week Alabama scheduling game against a really inferior opponent. And that's the quickest way, the easiest way to make this more competitive given the current landscape. And Arguably, then you you have a claim that you have the most competitive matches. Now, I don't know if there's some sort of clause that they can't include Europe. Like, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, the PGA, if I were the PGA, I would be absolutely irate if they did that. <laughs> right. So so that's the easiest option to relevance. And, and if you think about this week, if John Rahm and Rory were playing, this this would be a completely different story. Yeah, I, I guess so. But but the problem would be then the President's Cup would be even harder to differentiate from the Ryder Cup, right? Even th- Then it would be even closer in its concept. It would. and But I don't think that, that really worries the tour. They're, they have a long history of copying, you know? <laughs> okay. You think, they, you think they don't really care about the current identity? <laughs> They're that, pretty shameless. Yeah, that, that relies on this uh, random concept of an international team. No, I, I, I see that. I think that... Maybe they would be a little bit worried that eventually you'd have a situation where the players who would qualify for the non-U.S. team would be all the same players who were just in the Ryder Cup, right? I don't think that is, that is an issue, though, because you've got the South Koreans that, you know, the South Korean golf contingent, I think, is only going to grow. And, and the Australians continue to be strong, though, though a lot of them have gone to live. I think the European, if you look at it right now, and obviously the way, you know, it, it, I don't think... Europe's Ryder Cup hopes look very good. And obviously it's been a long time since the U.S. has won a Ryder Cup in Europe. You can say that, but like the strength of the team is not what it used to be. You know, the golden age of European golf, I don't think is necessarily right now. You know, they have some good high-end talent, but I think they're running into the same issue that the the internationals is. The other thing is just the rise of the of the talent of American golf. Is that an unforeseen, uh, un- never before seen depth of talent, right? This is less so about Europe getting 
weaker and more so about how good American golf has gotten. So with that, I would say that's the number one. Number two, this is this is the social media darling, is let the women let the women play, have it be a a co co ed event, international men and women against uh, American men and women. Obviously, I think from from number one creates like probably the most marketable event on the golf calendar. I think it's it's just like a no brainer slam dunk marketable golf event. It would be exciting. People would be super into it. It would be a home run from the PR department. Now, the issue, and everybody, this is like everybody floats this out there. Why aren't they doing this? The best international uh, women players, or the best players in women's golf are international players. The best players in men's golf are American players. When you put the two teams together, all of a sudden they look very equal because you've got kind of you know, lesser talent on the American women's side. You've got greater talent on the international women's side and you kind of, you blend those teams together. They look really formidable. Like they, they kind of are mirror opposites of each other. Now the issue, why, why wouldn't they do this? That would require the PGA tour to share some of that money, which is why they started the event in the first place. And it always comes back to this money thing with the tour and they do not want to share money. It's why a lot of great ideas haven't happened is it would requ- require the tour to collaborate. Now, maybe they'd be more open to doing this with Live Around. You know, like if I were running Live, I might look into trying to do this event on my own because I've got the Ramco series already. Like there's there's all kinds of natural fits. But for the tour, this is a this is a no brainer in terms of competition is going to be enhanced. I think the general interest for the event is enhanced. The global interest. I think that just imagine South Korea, right? How how excited the South Korean market would be about their exceptional women golfers being involved in this event. Exactly. And and then you've got like the corporate interest. I think there'd be a ton of of corporate partners. You know, they already have great corporate partners for this, but like any losses that you're sharing with the LPGA Tour in terms of giving them money, probably is going to be offset by corporate sponsors that want in and and want to support this event. But that would require them conceding some money. Like the the fear of losing out of some of this money would be an issue. So that's option 2. Option 3, which is kind of, you know, if you if you don't do that, this is my other favorite one is is make it an Olympic style what the Olympics should be. You know, I think this event would be really great if they just said, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to take the top three ranked players from every country that's got three players in the top 1,000 in the world rankings. Mm-hmm. And these these teams are going to compete in two days of stroke play where the top eight teams qualify for the match play component. And it's team match play with three players. Anything could happen in this format. You know, it would just be about getting into that round of eight or round of 16, whatever you you think. And people will be like, oh, there aren't there aren't enough teams. There aren't enough teams. I think you could you could field 25 to 30 teams based off of that criteria at a minimum. And obviously, you'd have your powerhouses. You have USA, England, Ireland, South Korea, Australia, South Africa would be, you know, Spain would be a good team. Italy would have a good team like you'd have those traditional powers. But, like, is it crazy to think that Austria, 
with Sepp Straka, Bern Wiesberger, and Matthias Schwab <laughs> could pull an upset and get into the finals or something. It's not crazy. Sepp Straka almost won the FedEx Cup. You know, it would be a, a tournament that would create like a March Madness type atmosphere because on a given day in a single elimination knockout, USA isn't necessarily going to win. The one, one or two of those players could have a bad day, shoot 72, and they could get upset by a country like Chile or Belgium or, you know, like Mexico. And all of a sudden then, I think what, what it would do is it would involve the entire tour, A, which I think is the big problem with the President's Cup, as I said in the, in the first part. But B, it would also involve the entire world, which I think is what the goal of the event is. If, if you tried to get past the money, is that this is a global event. It, you know, the, the, my favorite term, grow the game. Let me tell you what would grow the game. Is if, if Chile is watching Joaquin Neiman and Mito Pereira, and I, I don't have who the next highest ranked Chile, Chilean player, it might be Hugo Leon. So those guys upset America. I mean, you're talking about like a type of a miracle on ice situation, right? And it's not inconceivable that Mito Pereira and Joaquin Neiman go out and beat uh, Justin Thomas and Scotty Scheffler on a given day, right? So this is this would genuinely, I think, be a great tournament and give it a whole different identity, completely unique to the Ryder Cup. To the President's Cup. To the Ryder Cup. It would be way different. Oh, 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 in contrast to the Ryder Cup. Yeah. Yeah. You could still yeah. call it the President's Cup. You could keep all the money after the tour. You don't have to cut anybody in. And you create the event that the Olympics should have been. Yeah, this is definitely what the Olympics should have been, by the way. And I'm I'm not sure why, why it is and it doesn't make any sense. But an idea that's kind of based on that idea that you just laid out would be the Continent's Cup. And yeah, you'd have to rename the tournament and and maybe that wouldn't be the greatest thing in the world for the PGA Tour because it likes having those presidents, you know, or the prime ministers or wherever they are kind of be uh, be involved in the tournament in some capacity. But I, I don't think that the President's Cup relies on that anymore. Um, you could turn it into the Continent's Cup and have teams from North America, South America, Australia, Europe, Asia, and Africa, right? Um, and Antarctica, if they want to, if they want to field a team out of the out of the scientists down there, um, <laughs> it would be great if that team played every year and just shot like <laughs> yeah. shot hundred, like he, like four it, guys out there shooting hundreds. It would be it would be like the Olympics, uh, where where you know like the swimmers from the countries that don't have super strong swim programs are are like jumping in the pool and and barely making it at hundred meters. Um, but uh, in any case, I, I like this idea of a continents cup because. You know, it it kind of levels the playing field a little bit. Like, yeah, the North American team would be really, really strong. But if you had like a four or five person team, then Europe would have a super strong team. Asia would have a super strong team. South America. I mean, go down the list. You would have a, a real competition there and you would have like a limited number of teams. I think that would be that when you have. So when you condense the number of players on the team you're going to have more variability yes. and that's where the U S dominates is depth. When you have a 12 person team, nobody can compete with the U S with 12 people right now. Yeah. You, you, the U S is eight through 12 players right now 
are just going to absolutely wipe the floor with with most other with with most with a team Europe and with team international right now. But when you limit it to three or if you're doing continents, you could do five like that's where you get variability and it becomes a real competition. The other thing I think that it does is this there's this weird thing with the President's Cup where it's like. You know, it's not the Ryder Cup and it's kind of the same team with America. And I think there's some fatigue there is that this is like the Ryder Cup select team. Like this is like the creme de la creme, right? Differentiating this event more from the Ryder Cup and trying to lean into a new identity for it, I think is a great idea. You know, to me, out of the ideas that you laid out, involving women in the event would be the obvious one that I would be most enthusiastic about. But as you said, the reason this wouldn't happen right now is that the PGA Tour would not want to share the spoils with the LPGA Tour. Is that basically what it comes down to? I believe that's what it comes down to. Which sucks, because the LPGA Tour is supposedly a strategic ally of the PGA Tour. And think about what it would do. It, this is a all boats rise situation, right? And I think it would create a more compelling event for the PGA Tour. You would have a better event without a doubt. Absolutely. And B, you'd greatly increase the popularity of the women's game tenfold. You know, I think one of the things that having been to women's tournaments and, and you know, men's tournaments is like the thing that jumps out to me immediately when I'm when I'm at a women's event is just how much more friendly and how much more personable the players are. And I think one of the things that would happen when they're on the stage together is that the women personalities and and characters would really come to the forefront and and I think it would they would retain fans and viewers. And the more popular all of golf is, the better it is for the PGA Tour, whether or not they see it initially. But like the more popular women's golf is, the better it is for men's golf. And from the PGA Tour's perspective, there are a couple of markets right now where the PGA Tour doesn't have nearly as big of a presence as it could have. And I'm thinking of South Korea and Japan. And guess where women's golf is really popular right now, <laughs> South Korea and Japan. You would think that that would be kind of a motivational factor for the PGA Tour, but I, I mean, I don't know how the finances would break down, but but you would hope that something like this would be capable of happening because it would be great. I'm just thinking of you know how fun like the the mixed pairs would be, right? Oh. Men men and women pairs alternate, alternate shot. shot. That would be so fun. Yeah, I mean, it would be even interesting down to like what what type of ball are they playing and why, you know, like there'd be all kinds of cool stuff like who's teeing off evens and odds like there's all kinds of strategy there. Like what if one team goes evens, one team goes odds just I mean that that format, you'd get the juxtaposition of styles, which I think is like the thing that's that's makes golf really interesting. You know, uh, on each tour, it's always fascinating when a shorter hitter is playing with a longer hitter, it would be even more fascinating with men and women intermixed playing against each other on teams. Like you, you would just see such different styles and, and, you know, there'd just be so much that you could build up going into these matches and there'd be so much for the broadcast to chew on during the matches and it's just be so different than anything you have, right? And I think that's the big thing at the at the core of of what plagues the President's Cup is it's just not different. 
and this is an option for it to be way di- drastically different. The other op, the Continent Cup, different. The idea of being what the Olympics should be would be way different. You know, all these offer them a opportunity to create something unique and excitement comes when something's unique. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap up. Oh, one other thing. I had one other idea. Given the tour's success with TPC Sawgrass and the players, how how have they not built a President's Cup course? (laughs) Like we, we see, you know, whether or not you believe in match play courses and the idea of match play courses, you know, they're kind of like a little bit of a rage in golf course design. Like, why not build a stadium match play course? Even TPC Sawgrass would be a fascinating golf course to watch match play on. It would, they would, I think people would play a lot differently than we see them play in the players. Yeah, yeah. The, the trick would be finding an international course that could host every kind of international home game. But also, you know, keep in mind the first two President's Cups and like four out of the first maybe six or seven President's Cups were held at one course, Robert Chen Jones Golf Club, which I think was chosen partly because it's close enough to Washington, D.C., so that the presidents could be, make it out there and and kind of be an honorary part of the festivities. But, you know, there is precedent for the President's Cup kind of being held two years in a row at one course. Now, I don't know if it was that good for it to be held at Robert Trent Jones Golf Club two years in a row. But if there were some kind of uh, consistent uh, venue for these events, whether it's in America or abroad, I think that would be really good. Now, the issue, Andy, is who do you think the PGA Tour at this point would get to build this course? That is the issue. It, would, it wouldn't be Pete Dye, right? <laughs> I mean, obviously, Pete Dye has passed away, but it wouldn't be uh, – what I'm saying is – They got it, their own in-house design team. Exactly. It would be like Steve Wensloff and, uh, <laughs> and that crew. Uh, looking at some of the work that they've done on the 12th hole at TPC Sawgrass in the past few years, I'm not totally confident that they would uh, execute this course that well. So uh, that that might be an issue. If Pete Dye were still with us and if the PGA Tour still were still relying on him for uh, design services or if there were somebody of similar talent and stature that the PGA Tour had a good relationship with, then this idea would be a bit more compelling. But I'm just not sure what PGA Tour architecture would produce <laughs> for this uh, at this point uh, in the in the PGA Tour's existence. So that would be cool in practice, you know, we might get like a Liberty National type situation and 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 that wouldn't be that fun. I uh, I think Medina post renovation could be exciting. That would be amazing, but it's not owned by the PGA Tour, so they wouldn't want to go there every single year. Would Medina want to hold it every uh, every other year? I I don't know. Yeah. I don't I do, maybe probably I mean it it will be super super cool. I mean it's uh That well that's the other thing about um if they did the Olympic style one there's no reason they couldn't do it every year. If they did if they did the men's and women's one, I could see them doing it every year. Like you know there are ways they could make more money from it and the way you make more money from it is creating something that has a clearly different identity than than the Ryder Cup, then you can do it more frequently. Then you're not competing with the Ryder Cup, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and and this logic that you're talking about, creating a home for an event, something that is a is a big swing, and it could pay off big time, or it could be a disaster. This was the exact kind of move that Dean Beeman made in the late '70s with TPC Sawgrass and the Players Championship. This is what 
the PGA Tour did then. But I don't think the PGA Tour is in a place any longer where it's taking these big swings and taking these big chances. Seems like the Rory's taking a big swing for Well, Rory's the taking a big Tour. swing for Well, and, and well but just consider how the last year has gone with the PGA Tour that the organization has had, had every reason to take a big swing. If this was if there were any set of circumstances that would require some kind of huge risk to be taken by the PGA Tour, this would be it. But the PGA Tour really didn't do anything. Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods did something. And so are they going to reinvent the President's Cup? I, I don't think so in the end. I think you probably agree with me about that. Yeah, it, it'll just continue on the mediocrity path that it's been on since its start. It'll kind of linger, but at least we'll get team match play. As I've said several times, I always look forward to team match play. So at least we will get a taste of that uh, this week. And and I hope it is a, a close match. It, it would be a real bummer if it were hugely lopsided and we got to Sunday singles and there was just no chance. That would be that would be a big blow. And it would start a discussion about about live and about the future of the event. If if the U.S. somehow uh, somehow loses, then it'll just be you know a year of of this is a dire situation for for the Ryder Cup. What went wrong at Quill Hollow could haunt the Ryder Cup for decades. I swear to God, the U.S. losing this Presidents Cup would be the best possible scenario. Um, I really, really do hope the U.S. loses, and that's not because I'm unpatriotic or something. I think it would just. It would be by far the most interesting situation. All right. I think I think we've, uh, uh, unless there's anything else you wanted to get into. I got nothing else. We've covered a lot of territory. Um, all right. So I uh, hope everybody enjoys the President's Cup uh, this, this coming week. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, Andy, thank you so much for your time. I'll talk to you soon. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. Thank you, Meg. So one quick shout out to the Fried Egg Pro Shop. We would recommend that you go to proshop.thefriedegg.com and check out our new fall line of merchandise. We've got all sorts of stuff up there. We've got vests. We've got long sleeve t-shirts. We've got performance sweatshirts. We've got new winter hats, drinkware, tumblers, hoodies, quarter zips, and lots, lots more. So if any of that sounds interesting, then go to proshop.thefriedegg.com and check out all of our new stuff. All right. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you again next week. Thank you.